Hello and welcome to episode 341 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we're coming to you in separate locations today. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the four-time WNBA champion, Storm. I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion, Seattle Seahawks. The Seahawks coming off a big win Sunday, coming from behind to beat the Los Angeles Rams. A big we'll win get to that. John Wolford. Oh, <laughs> look, it was, it was still an important win. It was certainly an important win. We're going to get to that in a second. An important win. We're, we're doing the semi-emergency pod style. We're going to talk about the Seahawks second, but after the toast, we got to talk about some important UW football news on Sunday. Plenty of UW football news on not Sunday. Not one, not two, three emergency pods back to back to back. You, all, you see all the cold emergency Wong pod podcast. Oops, all emergency pods. <laughs> you see the Colton Wong trade. It's more of an emergency pod than I see it, given that that happened several days ago. <laughs> <laughs> no one asked for the emergency pod. Uh, we got some Golden Wong material, though. We're going to get to that. But let's start with what I'm drinking tonight, which oh, is the uh, Ruben's Crush Hunger Hazy IPA. <sighs> there we go. Ruben's Crush Hunger is a medium-bodied, juicy, and hazy IPA featuring Citra, Chinook, and Sabro hops. A portion of the proceeds from the sales of this special release in the Ruben's Crush series will go to a program dedicated to combating food insecurity. All right, well, we start on a bit of a, uh, a somber note. We're remembering Gaylord Perry, the Major League Baseball Hall of Famer who won his 300th career game with the Mariners in 1982, becoming the 15th player in Major League history to do so in the first since early win in 1963. The uh, notorious spitballer also famously was ejected later that season for doctoring a ball, the first and only time that happened during his career. I remember that. It's funny because... Uh, the way to be beloved is cheating plus time. <laughs> We're gonna, somebody somewhere is going to look back fondly on these Astros. Uh, well, I was going to say, it still does not seem to be happening for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. If you saw the uh, the MLB Modern Committee, whatever that is, news I said on Sunday. looked back belovedly, right? You, is there anybody out there who's like, oh, Barry Bonds? Oh, I don't know about him. Nobody. Everybody loves Barry Bonds now. I think they are. They're named the MLB Modern Player Committee. Who's not part of the man or Fine. whatever. Fine. Cheating plus time. That's it. I just did the math. <laughs> but you got to be like good at cheating. I mean, I guess Gaylord Perry is... wasn't. Barry Bonds wasn't good at cheating. Well, I'm saying that like no one is going to remember like mediocre cheaters fondly. Uh, uh, Brett Lenny Moon. Randall, was, <laughs> do we consider what, him trying to blow the ball foul? Was that was that cheating? I don't even think that. That's just part of the game. It's, it's part of the lore. But that's another fun mar- early Mariners memory. Absolutely. Yeah. Were they they called the play foul, right? Uh, yes. Yes, they did. Uh, so per- Gillard Perry passed away at age 84 on Thursday. So uh, uh, definitely remembering him and his ties to the Mariners. All right, continuing the toast. Uh, congrats to Western Washington University's women's soccer team on winning the Division Two title on Saturday at Interbay Soccer Stadium, beating previously undefeated Westchester University 2-1 to for the second national championship in program history, having won in 2016. Hell yes! Fuck you, Westchester! Do you know some Feldcast geography? I love this. Where Westchester University is? 
it has to be in uh upstate new york somewhere right not that westchester <laughs> two two words westchester as opposed to westchester all one word which is upstate new york where <laughs> where is westchester it's a suburb of philadelphia it's in pennsylvania and they could go straight to hell <laughs> Didn't know we had a rivalry on this pod with Westchester University for Western, which I didn't know that we necessarily supported that much. I mean, it seemed cool that they wanted nobody, um, and I mean nobody <laughs> comes comes into Interface Soccer Stadium and pushes us around. <laughs> us in this case being the Western Washington University soccer team. I do wonder whether, like Westchester University and the people that are potting about them, it's like the the division one men's national championship being held in Cary, north carolina they have similar complaints about the fact that western got to play it right down the road is that where it always is the division two it, it is not always there as far okay. as far as you can tell but that's where it was both men's and women's this year all right all right next up congrats to uh, craig weibel who was promoted to gm and chief soccer officer by sounders fc to replace the departed garth Loggerway. uh had already been part of the organization working under Loggerway in the front office and uh also a a uw husky legend so uh uh not not a surprise to see him get this promotion and you know someone who has an opportunity to continue the success that the sounders have enjoyed throughout their mls tenure uh congrats sticking on this theme to UW offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb who signed a two-year contract extension last week that boosts his pay next season to 1.45 million so uh is with Kalen DeBoer signing his own extension with a pay raise a reward for a very successful first season hard to do any better than Ryan Grubb did as offensive coordinator in his first season well while I think within the scheme of college football coaches pay Ryan Grubb is appropriately paid I feel really uncomfortable with the idea of toasting to any college football coaches getting paid. That's fair. That's that's reasonable. But I, there's no offense to Ryan Grubb. That is just yes. any coach in general. Except for, weirdly, Coach Prime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, congrats to UW football players Romo Dunce and Devin Culp, who were named to the 2022 CSC Academic All-District Team which requires a minimum 3.5 GPA. So uh, Udunze and Culp excelling on the field and in the classroom. And then lastly, the big one, the the emergency pod one here. To Michael Penix's junior, Michael Penix Jr.'s decision to return for the 2023 season, his sixth at the college level, second at UW. Penix had that extra year available because of the combination of redshirting in 2018 when he played three games and the COVID year. And... I, I've been maintaining all along that I did not expect him to be back. I think you were perhaps a little more optimistic about the chances of it, but uh, certainly a pleasant surprise from that standpoint. Huge news. Yeah. Already, already on the Mount Rushmore, already atop the Mount Rushmore of UW quarterbacks, Michael Penick's unfinished business. I love everybody who, who comes back always has unfinished business whenever they come back. But announced during the team awards ceremony with a video from Penix building up to it. And you're like, I mean, we knew what the outcome was going to be. If you were watching this live, you'd be like, damn, Michael Penix is saying goodbye to UW. And then he's like, and I'll be back next year on Montlake. That's a fucking legend right there. Flair for the drama. Michael Penix Jr. After already having the greatest season in UW quarterback history, being one game, honestly, one drive away from a chance to play for the college football playoff 
coming back to Seattle. He could have easily gone pro. I, I think looking at this, we were talking about what might have incentivized Michael Penix Jr. to come back. And I think one of the things that we have to look at is the current climate with NIL deals. And I think I mean, that's that interesting because last week he said, told reporters that that would not factor into his decision, NIL specifically, even though, you know, there were some opportunities on the table for him. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you just not believe in him? Matt Rule does it for the love of the game, too. <laughs> but, like, the... The reality is, if this was a decision to go, I, I mean, I think it is a combination of two things. I think there's probably a lack of interest in Michael Penix Jr. at the pro level, which, whatever, right? I mean, you I, don't. I was going to point out a different aspect of the climate, which is that there's a shit ton of quarterbacks in this year's draft. Like, I think in 2024 draft might be a little less crowded from that standpoint. So even though you've got the injury concerns that, you know, make it a little bit risky for him to come back. There is potentially the upside of you could be a standout in the 2024 class in the way that you can't in 2023. But I I do think he's coming back a little bit for Drew Timmy reasons, which are we've already seen him partner with Simply Seattle on a t-shirt. He's definitely making money there. The NIL opportunities that will be available to Michael Penix Jr., which I am confident that the University of Washington made him very, very aware of over these last couple of weeks. Those opportunities that'll be available to him this next year. He's he's one of the most famous football players in the city of Seattle right now. When yep. he moves on, he will not be one of the most famous football players in whatever city he's going to, right? And so if it's fringe practice squad, quarterback, something like that, you're just desperate for an opportunity. I think the money could be better here in Seattle with obviously the opportunity of potentially building your your future opportunities in the NFL and beyond after that and building that glory here in Seattle. So I, I think, like I said, similar to a Drew Timmy, who maybe he would have been drafted, right? Maybe he'd be at the end of an NBA roster or two-way contract or something it like that. He'd certainly be on a two-way, yeah. He's coming back and having the chance to compete for a Pac-12 championship in what may be the last year of the Pac-12. <laughs> yeah, a lot a lot of potential less. I mean, I think the other aspect of it is and I think this is probably more true in football than it is in basketball. Like you've got a chance to spend another year being big man on campus. It's probably a lot more fun experience to be quarterback of an elite college football team than it is to be on a practice squad. Like if you give Jake Browning the opportunity to come back for a fifth year at UW, I feel like he probably would have taken it, all things considered. Like it's just a more more fun, more rewarding Maybe not experience. In the moment, but after he went and did the time on a practice squad in the NFL, except for the like one week where he is starting quarterback because of COVID. <laughs> like I I'm sure after doing that, Jake Browning is probably looking a little bit more fondly on his time. I think he UW. probably knew. I think he knew that the NFL was not exactly like clamoring for his services as a starting quarterback. So I, I mean, I'm glad that uh, Michael Penix is excited about this decision. It, it's interesting because you know, when you when you look at UW's Pac-12 schedule, it broke rather nicely for them this year in terms of not playing USC and Utah. But traditionally, when you think about which seasons UW is going to be more successful, it tends to be the odd, even though they also won the Pac-12 title in 2016, which was an even-numbered year. But hypothetically, it's really the odd-numbered years where you're more set up for success because you have both the fifth conference home game with the Apple Cup being at home, and also you have Oregon at home, yep. which is the case next season. Now, the downside from a conference schedule standpoint, the other thing, by the way, next year, 
Arizona State at home. It's exactly. not going to be yes. a noon kickoff. They're still going to the Tempe. desert, but not going to Tempe this time. Yeah, Tucson and Arizona, not exactly the same house of horrors for UW that Tempe has been. Uh, but the downside is next year, both USC and Utah are on the schedule. Utah comes to Husky Stadium. Huskies will play at USC in the last year for the Trojans in the what is now the Pac-12 conference. I think that is I, I think that's part of the fun of it is having those opportunities to play those games. But the schedule does break. I mean, when you look at the road games at Michigan, at Michigan State, a real question mark for what that looks like. And then at USC, those are kind of the two road games that you have circled on the calendar. Oregon as, State, I think, also could be. Uh, I mean, Oregon State Oregon rang State, a bell. as like, uh, well, we'll see. I mean, there's what? there's 17th, I think, in the rankings, 17th or 18th in the in the college football playoff rankings. I, I think when viewing college football, though, and this is part uh, another part of the conversation here, when viewing college football, it's almost more important to a certain extent to understand the program and who they are because of the transfers that are happening, right? USC may not look like USC looked this year. Caleb Williams is going to be back in almost all certainty. USC is going to be a very, very good team. That is going to be an extraordinarily hard game. Beyond that, Michigan State, who knows if they'll be able to retool. But if you, I just feel like there's going to be, if you took the schedule right now, I think there's one game that UW would not be favored in for all of next season. And a lot can happen before then. But if there's one game and it is at USC that if, again, if you're doing spreads in this very moment that UW would not be favored in, that's a pretty favorable schedule. Yeah, that's probably a reasonable take. I mean, obviously... There's going to be a lot of movement in terms of players going to the NFL and transfers still to come that could affect that. Utah, also Cam Rising, has a decision on the NFL draft that is going to be pretty influential in the Pac-12 race in 2023. He's in kind of a similar position They've to They've got Penix like first-round pick ways. defenders going out as well, though. Yeah. UW does not. <laughs> well, that's, that's, yes, that's the upside of UW's defense this season. Don't have to worry about the draft in quite the same way. I think when looking at the roster, it is an extraordinarily young defense. There's almost no chance that they don't get better because it's difficult to get worse. The receivers, very, very young receiving core as well, should be coming back almost completely. The offensive well, line. Well, Roma the- Dunse has also talked about being on the fence about whether to inco- declare for the draft. He's coming back. The It seems like Penix's return makes it more likely he would return. The only question mark to me is the offensive line depth. And it was a more experienced offensive line this year. And and they were an excellent offensive line this year. I think that would be the only question that I would have going into next season. I mean, obviously the defense, but like the only very large question. And the thing to me that when I, when we approach this offseason, what Kalen DeBoer and Michael Penix achieved this year and getting to a two-loss season, having Penix in the conversation for the Heisman, Let's, going let's, to the say, it a, let's say it is a 10-win season. As a 10-win season. They're going to be very much in the mix for any transfers that are out there. And, you know, I, they're not at the tier of USC, Michigan, Ohio State, teams like that. But they're going to be in that second tier. Those players that are leaving from those big schools because they didn't have the opportunities. The University of Washington is right there. It's got the profile. It has the opportunity And it's in a major city. You know that you could play in the NFL if you played at the University of Washington, offensively or defensively. Scattered throughout the NFL, they're Huskies. So I do think that UW is going to be active 
and a very viable option in the transfer market, especially the transfer market, with Michael Penix Jr. coming back next year. There are going to be a lot of players who want to compete for, uh, so frustrating the playoff doesn't start next year, but who want to compete to play in New Year's Six games and will view this University of Washington team with Penix coming back as a really, really great opportunity to do that. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Now, the other interesting question on the backside of this, by the way, you mentioned at Michigan State next year, the return game from them visiting uh, the the rest of the non-conference schedule next year, the Huskies host Boise State. It's going to be a fun one. Tulsa. I'm kind of excited about that. Also, I think I'm committing right here. I don't I don't know about the Michigan State game. That's a that's a real possibility. You're going but, to Tulsa? <laughs> <laughs> that game's to be played here. I gotta go to the USC game. I've never seen wow. a game uh, at the Coliseum. So I think this is the this is the year to do it. We have no I'll go to that. Okay. I would go to the if you're going to the USC game, I would go. Nice. But the the other side of the transfer situation is what happens with UW's other quarterbacks, knowing that Penix is going to be back next season? Uh, you have two years of eligibility remaining for Dylan Morris. This season is back on. It, it playing, seems... playing at Fresno State next year. Fresno State, by the way. Congrats to Fresno State and, and Jake Hayner. There we go. Mountain West champions. They're facing Washington State in the Jimmy Kimmel oh, LA Bowl. Really? So that's a pretty exciting matchup. That's pretty fun. Yeah. I will not be traveling to LA for that one, but that that sounds like a fun one to go for. Uh, Sam Heward still has three years of eligibility remaining because the Huskies, well, he's actually, he, he has followed the redshirt rules both seasons because he did not appear in four games this season after being limited to four last season. Who I, th- I think Sam Heward's going to stick it out. You would think he's more likely to, because again, that's still potentially two years as a starter after Penix goes, you know, exhausts his eligibility. Uh, and, and of course, I mean, they're, especially if you're the backup next season, given Penix's health history, like, I don't know that we can count on it being like this season where he has stayed healthy and started every game. Like there's an opportunity for you to potentially play next season if you're the backup. Yeah. And, so. and I think the reason we're excited about Michael Penix coming back for this year is obviously because of Michael Penix's play, but it's also been his play in the Kalen DeBoer system. And yes. same with Jake Hayner. Sam Heward is aware of these things. Sam Heward understands what Kalen DeBoer has done for these quarterbacks that has made them, you know, important quarterbacks. So, uh, but also Penix being a lefty as well. I, th- I think there's definitely some continuity there. I, I would, I'm anticipating that Sam Heward comes back. So you alluded to this. The Huskies ended up as the top-ranked team not to qualify for the New Year's Six Bowls after a pair of upsets hurt them. Utah beating USC in the Pac-12 championship and then Kansas State beating TCU in the Big 12 championship. Uh, So instead, they are headed to the Alamo Bowl for the second time in program history, 11 years after playing there in 2011, to match up against number 20 in the college football playoff rankings, number 21 in the AP and the coaches' poll. Texas Longhorns and Steve Sarkeesian. Hello, Sark revenge game. Who was it? Who we played in 2011 in the Alabama? Baylor. That was that was in the okay. I thought that was the that's Hall, the RG three game. Yeah, every time so we much play fun. in the Alamo Bowl, it's against a team from Texas, which is a pretty distinct home field disadvantage. I I just want to say, God, what were the New Year's Six matchups? The I feel like the New Year's Six matchups this year 
aside from maybe even at the very top. I mean, so you, you the tell Rose Bowl... me how much coping this is. Okay, <laughs> I, read read the matchups. I mean, I don't have the full list. I'll, I'll have to pull that up. But the Rose Bowl is it is a Pac-12 versus Big Ten matchup for the last time ever because of the fact that it's going to be a semifinal next season. So it's going to only have to happen by accident uh, going forward. But uh, that's going to be Penn State versus Utah. USC, after losing the Pac-12 championship, is taking on Tulane. Uh, we've got in the Sugar Bowl, Alabama versus Kansas State. And what's the other New Year's Six that I'm missing? Purdue, Tennessee. Is that right? In the so Peach Bowl or something? Uh, the Orange Bowl, which is Tennessee versus Clemson. Is Clemson. Oh, wasn't Purdue in one of them? Maybe. I, maybe I read that wrong. But I think you read that wrong. They were playing in the Citrus Bowl against against LSU, but I don't think okay. either of those are in the top 12, are okay. they? I see that. So a lot of these games, I'm just like, okay. Like, they're fine. But getting a chance to go play against Steve Sarkeesian in Texas and a very good Texas team. Also, probably an underrated Texas team. Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. This is not going to be the full preview because obviously we'll have a, a preview pod week of. If you're not going to be in the playoff, this might be sacrilege to you or whatever. The only thing that really matters out of getting a bowl game is having a fun game and playing somebody interesting in an interesting situation. For USC, if they win whatever the Fiesta Bowl against Tulane, who gives the Cotton Bowl against Tulane? Who gives a fuck about that, right? That is a failure of a season for USC. If they win the Cotton Bowl and they beat Tulane, it is, I'm sorry, but it just isn't. Because the only thing that that you gain by, and I'm sure there's financial incentives to win the Cotton Bowl as well. But like, as far as the experience of playing in that game, they get to play Tulane. Whoop de fucking do, right? Like I, I would be upset if that's what happened. If you were like you have the opportunity to play in the Cotton Bowl and play Tulane or to play in the Alamo Bowl and pl- and face Steve Sarkeesian. I mean, that's a little disrespectful Texas. to Tulane, but I'm yes, sorry, I think but like, this is a very fun matchup. I, I don't think anyone can dispute that. But I I don't want to play Kansas State. I don't want to play Purdue. I don't want to play Tulane. It doesn't matter playing against those teams. They're not interesting. Playing against Texas and having this opportunity is a more interesting thing because ultimately bowl games do not matter. I mean, I think that there's... The, what there's what bowl game do we remember the most that's happened? What, what Was it the time we played Boise State for the millionth time? Absolutely not. I... But that was non-marquee ball, so I don't know. I don't know what your point is here. Like, if UW had played Penn State in the Rose Bowl, I think we would. We would. That would be a notable game. I suppose so. Like, I. I mean, I do remember obviously playing Penn State in the Fiesta Bowl, playing Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, and 2011 playing RG three and Baylor in the Alamo. Bowl. I, that was a that was a very memorable game. I mean, I, I think your damn playing Nebraska in the Holiday Bowl was also quite memorable. Was it when? I do not, I literally do not remember the game. 2010, it was a rematch of the, it was the Avenged, the Burn Your Jersey game. There we go. Great. <laughs> it, like, I could not say anything. I like, I remember where we were watching that Alamo Bowl. I against remember RG3. We, were, we were at the famous Cousin Cadiz watching that we Holiday Bowl. We played Nebraska all the time. 
I right? mean, don't, don't believe we've played Nebraska since that game. When was the last time that UW played against Texas? That is In a our great lifetimes? question. I, I do not know off the top of my head. Like this, it is, it is a fun matchup and it's Texas. Nobody's like, when was the last time UW played Tulane? I right? agree that, but I think you need to put a little respect on being the best team from the group of five. I, I think what if it was Coastal Carolina. less respect on being the best team from the group of five. Parody is bad. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, this is some epic hating here. Uh, literally the only interesting thing that can happen in those games is you lose to one of those teams, right? Those are the only times that I remember. I remember Oklahoma losing to UCF. I remember Oklahoma losing to Boise State. <laughs> you remember a lot of losing to Boise State? Right? I mean, it's not untrue. That's it. So beyond that, if you win, it's just like, yeah, you beat Tulane. Great. That's all there is, right? Like, they can hang a Cotton Bowl banner. Okay. I mean, the Cotton Bowl means something. Sure. Literally nothing means anything, but it means something. We're about to go into an era when all of these bowl wins are so deeply irrelevant. I mean, but all of any, nothing means anything in and of itself. It's all assigned value. And yes, the fact that it's Sark makes it more assigned value. And the fact that it's Texas makes it assigned value. Right. When you look at these two schools, University of Washington and Texas, right, two large state schools at opposite ends of the country. Two oh, pillars. They, played, they did play each other in our memory. The 2001 Holiday Bowl. Was that when it was freezing cold at your house? We watched that. Uh, no, that was a Washington State was playing in the Holiday Bowl in a subsequent year. We watched this at our grandparents' house. Uh, Cody, this was Cody Pickett's first season as a starter the year right. after the Rose Bowl team with Marcus Tuiasasopo. It was a 47-43 Texas win. So I, I love these opportunities. And that's why this is fun. Like I saw that and I was like, I can't wait to watch that game. I'm yeah. excited to see this. And so I'm I'm happy about the conclusion. Again, you tell me if this is too much coping to not be in a New Year's Six game. But the reality was they weren't going to play in the college football playoff. Playing in the Rose Bowl would have been fun against... I mean, in this scenario, probably Ohio State again, right? That would have been a fun thing to have done. But beyond that, the second that Utah beat USC, this was the best case scenario for UW. Well, it was pretty much the only scenario for UW at that point. But yes, I, I agree it was a good scenario. So Texas went 8-4 and four with three of their four losses coming to teams ranked in the top 11 at the time. Their one-point home loss to Alabama, a seven-point loss at Oklahoma State, and then a seven-point home loss to TCU. The Alabama loss was with Quinn Ewers getting hurt also in the game. Yes. Thrilling game. I was watching that on my flight to Las Vegas, streaming that. Uh, they won at eventual Big 12 champ Kansas State in their best performance of the season. And shockingly, the Longhorns are number six in FPI, I saw this. where the Huskies are 22nd. So they are overwhelming favorites in this game, according to FPI. We'll I see saw that, that they were number six. Like they, they are, where, is one of TCU or Ohio State below them in FPI? Uh, I don't know if that's the case. It's pretty I know, close. I know that Ohio State is ahead of them. FPI-wise, Texas is not far off from being culture ball playoff team. Uh, Texas is solidly ahead of TCU. There we go. Comfortably ahead of TCU. This is Penn State. So, and a number of teams, as it turns out. I'm excited for it. 
I again, I obviously returning to a bowl game is fun. Having that happen, like first, being, first since twenty nineteen, the last time the Huskies played the bowl game, Chris Peterson was their coach. Being able to do that, and even that bowl game was like that's ah, nice. I thought it was a pretty exciting in the moment because it was it was like the transition of power. The defense played awesome, and Jimmy Lake was taking over. Like it seemed like a really big moment, especially being there, and then not. So, I everyone think was excited. Everyone was excited at the time because they were about to fire the offensive coordinator. Oh, Little gosh. did they know what was coming. Uh Well, I just want to say one more time for Michael Penix Jr. The I feel like we didn't give enough enough pomp to what he has done. This wasn't a one-year rental, right? This wasn't Kawhi Leonard with Toronto, won a championship, and then he was gone. This was Michael Penix coming to Seattle, planting roots in Seattle, being a fixture now of University of Washington football. This wasn't one season where he showed up, had an amazing season, and was gone. Michael Penix said... I believe in myself. I trust in this organization. I trust in these players around me and let's run it back. And I think that's a huge deal for Michael Penix this year. Uh, He is somebody who, as we go into the end of the season, he is one of the most important figures in sports in Seattle for all of 2022. But will he be the Seattle sports figure of the year? Stay tuned. Also leader this week, the Pelton cast year in music. Hello. Assuming Tristan actually is ready to record it by then. I've got a lot of listening to do. All right, let's t- <laughs> There was a lot of music recorded in the last year, yeah. You're going to have to catch up on all of it. Let's talk now about the Seahawks and their 27-23 win Sunday in Los Angeles against the shorthanded Rams team, which, unexpected to us when we recorded the preview last week, started John Wolford at quarterback. We assumed that even with Wolford healthy that they were probably going to go with Bryce Perkins, but we only saw Perkins for one play in this game. And Wolford immediately led the Rams to a touchdown drive, uh, a subsequent field goal, and then the go-ahead score, go-ahead touchdown in the fourth quarter of this game, only to be answered by the Geno Smith flu game. As Gino said afterwards about his health, I've been struggling, man. I woke up today hurting and just kept fighting, kept going, kept going, kept going, and God is good. Gino threw for a career-high 367 yards, uh, and delivered for the first time in his Seahawks career a game-winning drive for the first time since 2014 when he was playing for the Jets. We've been waiting for this. We've been talking about this moment. Yes. And finally, it came. We thought it was coming last week against the Raiders, but we were week too early. And instead, Gino! Despite I mean, those... Despite those two turnovers, he had himself a game. I mean, the one turnover he, he does not bear a lot of responsibility for. I think the I NFL give him replay very crew. little responsibility for both of those turnovers. Really, like when you're pres- when you're being sacked and you're trying to throw it and your arm gets hit, that's kind of more on the offensive line than it is on Gino. It wasn't a Russell Wilson sack, right? Like it was a play where he was trying to get the ball out, but for some reason Charles Cross was lined up on the right side of the line and. The pressure was coming against Damian Lewis on the edge, which is something that he's not used to. I do think there was something. I, I We'd have to look at that play again, exactly what that looked like. But something was off on that play. Yeah, I assume we'll, we'll learn more about that on Monday when with the Pete Carroll show and, and his uh, post-game press conference, day after press conference, I guess to say it. 
so we'd had five opportunities before this for Geno Smith to lead game-winning drives in games the Seahawks ended up losing. Uh, first, when he came in for the injured Russell Wilson last season against these same Rams, where they began that drive. Not with those ten- Rams. <laughs> well, true. <laughs> Calling true. them these same Rams. The eventual stretch. Super Bowl champion Rams. No, there was only a 10% win probability at that start of the, that drive, which ended an interception on, I believe, the pass that was in Tyler Lockett's hands and got deflected and intercepted. Bounced out, yeah. Then the next week, it was at Pittsburgh in overtime. There was a 31% win probability there when when Gina was strip-sacked by uh, uh, TJ Watt. Uh, But people kind of forget, he did lead a field goal drive at the end of regulation to force overtime in that game. Oh, and he brought them back in the Rams game also. Yes. The New Orleans game the following week, the third of his four, the second of his three starts, third of his four appearances, uh, there was a turnover and downs on a drive that started with a 27% win probability. The Atlanta game earlier this season was intercepted on fourth down. Uh, That one, 33% win probability to start. So like all of those collectively, like the odds are one of those was going to result in a game winning drive, but none of them were really very favorable situations. The one that really was costly was last week against Las Vegas, the final drive of regulation and the Seahawks only drive in overtime, both of which they started with pretty strong win probabilities and both of which ended in punts uh, with some controversial calls along the way. I mean, yeah, you have you take those two drives and if you remove from them the clearly completed catch to DK Metcalf, which I am still upset about. And also the play where they were supposed to chip Max Crosby on the edge and had a first down right there, right? Like you see in hindsight what they were trying to do on that third down. And instead of it looking so ugly, it's just like you missed a chip. That's it. So the Seahawks began this drive with a 39% win probability. Like it was, it was pretty reasonable. Like the way they had moved the ball game, you expected them to get a field goal. The question was just whether they could get a touchdown and get this done in regulation or bleed enough off the clock to keep the Rams from having a final drive. And both of those things ended up being accomplished. You know, six of nine for 65 yards on the final drive, touchdown to DK Metcalf, the game winner. Huge. Gino did it. You had a little bit more faith than I did. Uh, you didn't feel you said, that way? I mean, I had it in the back of my mind that I, I thought there was a good chance it would happen, I suppose. But the fear level was extraordinarily high. Just the stakes that were on this one particular drive for the Seahawks as it meant their playoff odds for the season. We're talking about a wild swing. That's so correct. It's just the we'd seen earlier in the game an interception that to me shouldn't have been an interception, even after replay review. Even objectively speaking, if I can, uh, a play where if a receiver has possession and is down, that is a catch and they're down. You can't just then rip the ball out from them, but okay, that's fine. Maybe if it's a revenge game. Uh, And then the completion to DK Metcalf, if something like that happens, a tipped ball, whatever, right? Any of these things, I I was just like, we've in the way that we used to have so much faith in Russell Wilson, RIP, that that you're just like, he's going to lead this drive. I I similarly did not have that faith yet in Geno Smith. I Until it happened, I had a lingering, something's going to get fucked up here, which I think is a fair assessment because of all those drives you just went through. I mean, certainly, yes, you should have been pretty optimistic about the chances to score on the Raiders defense last week going in so yeah the fact that they didn't is a little troubling oh in my mind that game was over twice 
it was over the second we got the ball back after the touchdown, the second that they completed the pass to DK Metcalf. And it was also over the second that Daniel Carlson missed that field goal. So I, I was punished by being optimistic a week ago, and I was not going to let that happen again. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's not just Geno Smith. Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf uh, both had they had 127 and 128 receiving yards in this game. This game. That is the most that both receivers have ever had in a game in Seahawks franchise history. They are the third wide receiver to duo to have at least 127 yards, both of them in a game this season. Uh, Tyler Boyd and Jamar Chase did it once. Wow. Tyree Kill not have been the Bengals, I would have guessed. <laughs> Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell did it twice. Uh-huh. And Makes more sense. Then for Gino, career high 367 yards, even with some of the the turnovers today and surpassed his previous career high for yardage in a season is the Fox broadcast highlighted from 2013, his rookie campaign when he started all 16 games. Uh, trivia question for you. Yes. Can you name all seven Seahawks quarterbacks who have passed for 3000 yards in a season? Uh, okay. Gino. Yes. Uh, he's uh, the seven who have previously done it. Sorry. Russ. Yes. Hass. Yes. Matt Hass. Did Tarveris Jackson? He he sure did. Does it, Matt Matt Hass and Russell Wilson are the, the ones who did it multiple times. I, the most times at least. Warren Moon. Yep. John Kitna. Yep. That's five. Jim Zorn. Yep. Uh did Rick Meyer do it? No. Is there somebody who I'm forgetting in there? Yes. Between all those quarterbacks? Uh, not necessarily after one of them, but not between them necessarily. I feel like, I've, yeah, I feel like you should know this one. This this player was like his Seahawks ten years before our time, but he was in the NFL in the time that we were paying attention. Was it? I don't. You have to tell me. Dave Craig. Dave. Oh, okay, Dave Craig. Yes. And then who's the last one? That's it. That's the okay. Last. Oh, okay. I thought I had two more to go. I was like, I'm not getting two more of these. Yeah. No. Uh. So the other big storyline in this game was the Seahawks' health at running back. Ken Walker III jammed his ankle in the first half. Pete Carroll was uncertain about his status after the game. Uh, my ESPN colleague, Stefania Bell, noted that that action can result in a variety of injuries, including a bone <laughs> bruise or a pinched joint capsule. So probably some more testing needed to determine what the injury is and what the severity is, even though they were able to rule him out of this game. Travis Homer did not suit up, was uh, inactive due to a combination of a knee injury and illness. DJ Dallas was listed as doubtful due to an ankle injury late in the first half, but then he was forced to return to the game after Tony Jones Jr., who made his offensive debut for the Seahawks after previously playing exclusively on special teams, had to be evaluated after the hit he took that was flagged for unnecessary roughness. Thankfully, he was able to return and had seven carries for 14 yards, two catches for 18 yards in his Seahawks offensive debut, splitting time with Dallas. I forgot how much joy I was going to take in the Rams losing after them celebrating that hit on the sideline of the coaching staff, by the way. So you can fuck yourself, Rams. 
Um, I I think that last drive that Gino had, the thing that stands out to me is some of those drives that the Seahawks have with Gino where they just don't run the ball, right? There was the one one run on the drive, right? The draw that happened. Was there a second later on? I think that was it. Those are kind of the classic Geno drives where just get everybody up and go pass, right? Maybe there's some play action. Maybe there's not some play action, but he is extraordinarily good at leading those types of drives. And that's what this was. They came down and with the injuries that they had at running back, I, I mean, I personally post Rashad Penny injury, it's kind of a wash as far as who's playing running back. I do think they missed Travis Homer in this game. It would have been very nice to have had Travis Homer out there. I think he's probably the best running back on the roster at the moment. But running for the Seahawks is bad at this point. It is something that they should very, very, very sparingly do in the way that they did it on that drive, which was to say, hey, we can still do this. You have to think about it for a second, but we're not going to do it often. Or we might, we might catch you off guard doing this. We might exactly. We might get you off guard. This is a radically different Seahawks team than we have seen in previous years. And I, I think we have to give respect again to the coaching staff. They weren't going to drive on, run that much on that drive. But you don't watch these games and the feeling that we would feel for years and years and years against these same Rams many times was just pass the damn ball. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop trying to establish the run and grind it out. Let's go. Let's move. And that's what the Seahawks offense does. Even when it's not working, you look at it and it's like the stats from this game, they didn't overly rely on the run when it wasn't working. They didn't force it at any point. They might have even run a couple more carries than they should have, but this wasn't the type of game where they said, we've got Tony Jones back there. We've got DJ Dallas back there we're still going to pound the ball. No, this is a totally different offense. And I think it really showed on those drives. Looking at the game overall as a whole, because we, it felt like, it felt like the Rams played really well in this game, all things considered. And ultimately, what it came down to was, I mean, what was the yards per play? The Seahawks must have killed them in yards per play. It, it was pretty dramatic, yes. Uh this wasn't a close game. 6.7 for the Seahawks, 5.1 for the Rams, which honestly is better than I would have thought. But you look at John Wolford's stats, and it's like, just in, emotionally, John Wolford roasted the Seahawks defense in this game. And you look at it, and he's 14 of 26, two picks for 178 yards, 22 QBR. Cam Akers, who again, felt like he was running very well against the Seahawks in this game, was at three and a half yards per carry. There was really the plays that kind of killed them was the Wolford scrambling, the Tutu Atwell end arounds, Brandon, Brandon Powell, Powell. Yeah. Brandon Powell going for 48 yards. Like it, it was kind of a lot of garbage and smoke and mirrors that was getting the Rams down the field. Obviously, those plays matter. Those yards count. But I, I don't think this was defensively as apocalyptic for the Seahawks as it seemed. They were able to shut down John Wolford, the quarterback. And come up with some big plays at times. The Tariq Woolen interception in this one, uh, the sacks that they got from Uchenna Nuosu, uh, returning to SoFi Stadium for a second time this season. Not a revenge game, but still the place he called home for the last couple of seasons. And you know his his native Southern California with a pair of sacks. And Daryl Taylor coming up with a big sack on the final drive. Jordan Brooks with a sack on a blitz. Oh, and pass rush a little bit better. 
Yeah. I, I, there were signs of life from the pass rush. Uh, so that was nice to see. And, and really, the reason it was a close game was because of two turnovers in Rams territory. Then when you have two turnovers in opponent's territory and a game that they're on a ton of possessions on, it's going to be a close game. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing from this game, we want to talk about sacks on blitzes. Bobby Wagner with a pair of them giving him five on the season to match his career high. Uh, it's, been, it's been much written about the highest rated inside linebacker by PFF this season. I got to say, Bobby Wagner, I was wrong about where Bobby Wagner was at this stage of his career. I thought that, you know, his best days were far behind him and that he was, you know, still a solid starting linebacker, but nothing special at this point when the Seahawks released him. And I think I was wrong and probably wrong in part because of the Seahawks scheme, probably in part because of the fact that he wasn't able to blitz the same way last season because they were trying to figure out some way to get Jamal Adams involved in the pass rush and all of those factors. And he looked as good as ever in this game. It's kind of funny. Uh, you posted from the Pelton Cats Spotify wrapped, which by the way, Thank you to you, the listener, for uh, making the Pelton Cast one of the top 10 most subscribed podcasts top, on top 10%, Spotify. Top 10%. Top, top 10%. Top 10%. You always keep losing that out. Not top 10. <laughs> if it's top 10, we're recording like a podcast every 15 minutes. Uh, one of the top 10% most subscribed podcasts on Spotify podcasts. Uh but just looking back to that day in March about how deeply wrong we were about everything, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, like, let's save some of it for the year in review podcast. But the Bobby Wagner piece specifically, right? So we'll talk about the other stuff later and how wrong we were at another time. But just how deeply wrong we were about where each of those players were in their careers. And Bobby Wagner was somebody who we thought that this defense could move on from and not see that big of a change. And clearly that was wrong. Like I obviously pay, paying Bobby Wagner for where we thought the Seahawks were that kind of money. I'm not saying it was the wrong decision on the Seahawks end, but I think we'd be feeling a lot better about this defense if Bobby Wagner was out there. I think so too. Yeah. And that's not necessarily something we can say about the quarterback. So just understanding <laughs> that's definitely something we cannot say about the quarterback. Uh, understanding where those two are at and how those players were received as well. This was all love, right? Bobby Wagner wanted to beat the Seahawks, but the whole situation was all love. Pete, Bobby, everybody involved. He clearly is a beloved figure in the organization, had an amazing tenure in Seattle, and he's going to be one of the... I He might even be the most iconic Seahawks defensive player long-term Uh that there is maybe even above Cortez Kennedy. You're going to say ahead of Richard Sherman. I, th I mean, there was, it was more years. Yeah. It was, I, I think long-term Richard, we obviously love Richard Sherman, but I think long-term we will view Bobby Wagner as the most important defensive player in Seahawks franchise history. Well, quite possibly. Yeah. So it also felt like there's a much better chance of a reunion someday. I obviously signed a, a very long contract with the Rams, albeit not with a ton of guaranteed salary. 
uh, after next season. But we'll we'll see what the future holds on that one. Or or could be on the coaching staff. Yep. He, he's possible. somebody who I I would not be surprised if he ended up. We'll see how long how long you can win forever. But he's somebody who I would not be shocked if Pete Pete were to bring him onto the coaching staff at some point. Uh, do you want to talk about the NFC West? What you're talking, you're talking about the 49ers? Yeah. Do I want to talk about the Cardinals right now? <laughs> the Rams? <laughs> we talked about the Rams. By week for the Cardinals. Off week for a, a hard knocks in season. I was a little sad. I kind of wanted a hard knocks in season. When they were like, it'll return. December, whatever. Seven. I was like, oh, oh. no, actually, wait. They said December 7th. That's next week. That's this week. So they're not taking no, a week No, I think they said the 14th. Week. I'm pretty okay. sure they said. I'm pretty sure there's a bye week for hard knocks in season. Uh, I I just don't know. It's going to be a fascinating one. Where the 49ers go from here? I, I guess not having paid that much attention to the Niners-Dolphins game, from afar, before diving into it, it appeared as though Brock Purdy was not that big of a drop-off from what Jimmy Garoppolo had done because they won one of their hardest games of the season pretty comfortably. And then diving into the box score, I think maybe it painted a slightly different picture of Brock Purdy's game. Yeah, without question. So he was 25 of 37 for 210 yards, 5.7 yards per attempt, was intercepted in this. Still a pretty good QBR of 57, uh, I assume in large part because of the opponent adjustments here against the Miami defense. But uh, uh, this you mentioned how lopsided the Seahawks-Rams game was in terms of yards per play. Miami averaged 6.8 yards per play to San Francisco's 4.4, but four turnovers for the Dolphins ended up costing them. That's a huge discrepancy. The other thing was, so Purdy did lead a touchdown drive, 11 plays, 76 yards at the end of the first half to give the Niners the lead. Their scores in the second half, a 12-play, 39-yard drive for a field goal, a four-play, seven-yard drive for a field goal, a 10-play, 34-yard drive for a field goal, and then they got the defensive touchdown to wrap it up. So, we'll see. I mean, it definitely changes my perspective about the NFC West. Uh, obviously, that that game that they have ahead is a huge deal, but... If it's Tampa Bay on Sunday, they'll host them. It It, it definitely changes my perspective. At the very least. And we'll see Brock Purdy up close very, very soon. Presumably. Or or Josh Johnson, who is back for his third stint with the 49ers. Sure, he was with the Seahawks for like half a second, wasn't he? Josh Johnson? I feel like that happened at some point, right? We're one of the 14 teams he's been with, aren't we? Are you sure you aren't thinking of Josh Gordon? I, I'm familiar with Josh Gordon. Oh, maybe, <laughs> no, maybe I'm thinking of the other Josh Johnson who was a running back who played for the Seahawks. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Maybe it's the safety <laughs> who was hurt today. Josh Jones. Uh, should we talk about the Panthers? Sure. Seahawks back home to host Carolina next Sunday. They mentioned uh, on the broadcast, the Bears broadcast, and they were like, the Bears are hosting every single game at home in the month of December. And I was like, wow, do I pity Bears fans? <laughs> they're just like, they're three and nine. It's December in Chicago. I was like, good God. Well, they chose uh, to live in Chicago. They made that choice. Did I choose to live in Seattle? Yes. Yes, you did. Uh, the Panthers started this season one and five. Costing, costing 
the force you coaching change is uh forcing Matt rule to gain to make 10 plus million dollars a year in nebraska exactly as he was replaced on an interim basis by former cardinals coach steve wilkes who has kind of the team just, to a three and four record to stay on the fringes of the nfc south race i want there to be an alternative world where i'm a college football coach <laughs> right like seeing the jed fish extension i was like arizona reached the level of competent and they're like I mean, we've got to extend is, jed fish. A nice step up for arizona frankly i guess who's coming to steal jed fish away though that's the question that's, I, I, I think he had a pretty short deal. He was only extended for like through like 2026 20, or something. So it wasn't like it was Jedfish already had a long deal, but just come on, people. So the big storyline. There, there is a reckoning coming in college football. You would think, and yet it oh, never happens. There's not a reckoning coming in terms of the coaches' salaries going down. Those will always stay astronomical. There's a reckoning coming in what the sport looks like in general, and that is going to be precisely the same as the nfl well yeah yeah that's probably true uh the big storyline in carolina besides the coaching change has been their rotation at quarterback the panthers acquired baker mayfield from the browns in july he started the first five games of the season before suffering a high ankle sprain if we're talking about how we were wrong (laughs) (laughs) yeah Spending all offseason wanting Baker. I also wanted Jimmy G for what it's worth, which I don't think. I mean, obviously in terms of Gino, but like. Not in terms of Jimmy G has that aged poorly now. Yes. But definitely would have been happy with Baker Mayfield as the quarterback. So with Sam Darnold still on IR due to a preseason ankle injury, PJ Walker stepped in, retained the job even after Mayfield returned before Walker suffered a high ankle sprain, giving Mayfield the job back in week 11. Only to give way to Darnold after throwing two picks in a loss at Baltimore. Darnold then went 11 of 19 for 164 yards and a touchdown in a defense-led win over the Broncos in their <laughs> most recent game. Earning a chance to start after the bye that they had this weekend. Of the 39 quarterbacks involved in at least 100 in plays as a passer this season, Baker Mayfield ranks last and P.J. Walker ranks 38th. In both adjusted EPA per play and CPOA, according to RBSDM.com. Quarterbacks? 39. Baker is 39th. PJ Walker is 38th. Both of these quarterbacks are behind Zach Wilson? Yes. Wow. And Sam Darnold wasn't much better last season when he ranked 42nd of 44 qualifying quarterbacks in adjusted EPA per play and 41st in CPOA. So that's that's... I, I think we thought coming into the season, the Panthers had a better quarterback situation than the Seahawks. Speaking of being wrong. <laughs> uh, the Panthers haven't really missed Christian McCaffrey since trading him to the 49ers. Deontay Foreman has rushed for 100 plus yards four times in the subsequent six games. And they're eighth in rush EPA per play over that spot, two, over that span, two spots ahead of San Francisco. Uh, McCaffrey's still second on the team in targets. You'd love to mention that. DJ Moore having 54 more than anyone else on the current roster. Predictably, DJ Moore has struggled this season with a 52% catch rate given the quarterbacks throwing the ball to him. Keep an eye on second-year receiver Terrace Marshall Jr., who's averaged 18.2 yards per reception. Yeah, Deontay Foreman's kind of gone off this year. Looking at these numbers and the rushing yards. uh, Yeah. It's been very boomer bust. 
Like the the games where he hasn't gone 100 plus since he started starting, began starting are like 33 and 27 or something. 23 and 24. Uh, yeah, 23 and a a pretty lopsided loss to the Bengals and 24 and a 13 to three loss to the Ravens. I feel like the Panthers have played pretty good teams almost every week. I don't know. They're in the NFC South. They play a lot of other NFC South teams. They did beat the Buccaneers. But you look at the schedule. I, I, I guess they've played like a professional football team every week. If that makes sense. Who, you know, who are the non-professional football teams? Like they they haven't had like a Texans or they something the, like their that. last win was over the Broncos. I, 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 I don't know if you're aware I of where the Broncos like that, are. That is the, the least professional football team that they played all year. <laughs> I mean Cleveland. No, Cleveland and Jacoby was not bad. Yeah, no, that, that I wouldn't count. Also, like Baker played really well in that game, and it was like, oh yeah, Baker's just going to be a good quarterback this season, and then no. But their non-division games were like Cleveland, the Giants, and then the NFC West, but it was the Rams before everybody was hurt, the Bengals, the Ravens, the Broncos. Like, it has not been an easy go for the Panthers, I will say, in their defense. So the Panthers took Ike Okwanu with the sixth pick, three spots ahead of the Seahawks taking Charles Cross. Iquano has started every game for them, has been rated a 63 by PFF, slightly worse than Cross, who's rated a 65, and Abe Lucas, who's at 67. Uh, now, technically, offensive and defensive rookie of the year board uh, odds are currently off the board at Caesars Sportsbook by William Hill. But uh, worth noting, why are they off friend, the board? I, I'm not sure. I guess they have to recalibrate with the Ken Walker the third injury. That was just that threw everything off. A bad running back getting injured threw everything off on the rookie uh, odds. Our old friend Taekwon Thornton did have two catches for 31 yards on Thursday, bringing his wow. total to 12 for 117 on the season. Clearly more valuable than any of these offensive linemen who have started every game. I did, Ken Walker. Ken Walker is misunderstood. Um, Yeah, I I really don't know. Like, you just look at this matchup, and I think what it comes down to is... Oh, well, I, still, the Panthers... I still have one more, more section. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. The defense for the Panthers has been adequate, ranking 20th uh-huh. in DVOA entering this week's action okay. uh, after they were slightly better than average on defense last season. Our old friend Shaq Thompson leads the team with 89 tackles, and Brian Burns has really emerged as a dangerous pass rusher. He's already surpassed his career high with 10 sacks, after making his Pro Bowl debut in his third season last year. What was the rumor that the Rams offered three first-round picks for Brian Burns, too? I think so, yeah. God, I wish that would have happened. <laughs> the season, for, for the most part, has been perfect in every way. <laughs> uh, but the... Oh, it's like I mean, two first-rounders and a second. Is the, uh, the report from Adam Schefter. I really, really wish that had happened, but that's okay. We can't have everything. Uh, the Packers still going in and beating the Bears. Uh, that, that was disappointing. Also would have been helpful as far as the draft pick goes, because uh, we're still just angling toward uh, our, our Super Bowl here in Seattle. Broncos Rams on Christmas Day. I cannot wait. As a cut to Jody Allen in his suite. They're watching for draft pick. Uh but I, I think this game comes down to 
are the Panthers going to be able to generate the kind of offense? Like, I, I think we should expect Deontay Foreman to run fairly well against this defense, but... The, the run defense, yes, remains not good. I, I mean, you look at the Cam Akers stats overall throughout the game, and again, in the moment, it felt like Cam, Cam Akers was running all over the team. I think we a little bit have to reassess that Raiders game as well with the victory they had against the Chargers. I think the Raiders are a good team. They're not. They're definitely a professional football team. I think the Raiders, if you redo the season a thousand times, I think they are a playoff team more than half of those times. I mean, I guess so. We thought coming into the year, like the big challenge for them was going to be how good the AFC West was. And we were wrong on that one. (laughs) You did say at one point. All four teams, maybe. You did say at one point on the season preview that the Broncos had the worst quarterback in the AFC West. And that that was the one time. And I was right. right. I was. No, I said over on both of the New York teams. (laughs) Okay. It was the one time we were right about Russell Wilson. I, I the, the hate had started to creep in a little bit at that point, which was proper. Uh, I I think that the anticipation should be for Deontay Foreman to run the ball fairly well in this game against the Seahawks defense, and I think it's really just going to come down to beyond that: is there enough skill talent? This isn't the Raiders game, right? And again, if you play this Rams game. If you take out some of those turnovers, some of the lucky plays, it really wasn't as close of a game as it seemed. The Seahawks were a comfortably better team than the Rams were in L.A. So I I, I don't think it's going to be a particularly close game. And I think offensively, if the Seahawks can get the kind of offense going that they have had for most of the season, right? Even the second half offense post the Rashad Penny injury. I, I just don't see how the Panthers are going to keep up with them in this one. Yeah. I, I feel like it's probably an arm's length kind of game. It's like a 10 to 12 the entire. Yeah. So I'd say 80% chance of victory. I'm going to go a little bit higher. I think it's like an 83% chance of victory. Oh, okay. That's very yeah. specific. It's a Ricardo Lockett's uh, chance of victory. All right, let's get into the roundup, starting with the Mariners. No! Emergency pod number three. I, it's not an emergency pod. When did this trade happen? Last Thursday? Friday? It's been several days. I guess it was Friday. Colton Wong, heading to the Mariners. It's emergency pod, or emergency Mariners trade pod observed. <laughs> we, had to take, we had to take the weekend. Colton Wong is second baseman Colton Wong heading to the Mariners and Jesse Winker and Abraham Toro headed to the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, Wong won back-to-back NL Gold Gloves in 2019 and 2020, has been a reliable offensive contributor, posting three-plus war each of the last two seasons, five-plus in 2019. His average dropped a little to 251 last season, but uh, his 179 isolated slugging was a career high. 339 on base percentage remains solid. Should be a considerable upgrade on the production that the Mariners got from Adam Frazier at second base last season. M's also got $1.75 million in this trade to cover the difference between Wong's $10 million salary and Winker's $8.25 million salary for 2023. And that, combined with the fact that this opens up a spot in the outfield rotation, uh, I think the expectation has to be that the Mariners are going to be spending in free agency on someone else, whether it's bringing back Mitch Hanniger or uh, 
you know, you've mentioned Conforto is a possibility. Whoever it is, they got to be spending on a free agent in the outfield now. Okay. <laughs> you don't think that they're going to? I mean, sure. I bringing back Mitch Haniger is spending in the outfield, though. I, I guess I, I'm more. I don't agree with what spending in the outfield means. Because of the fact that it's not spending in the infield. Well, I I would want them to be spending as much or more than Mitch Haniger. I don't think bringing Mitch Haniger back is quite the same as what we're looking for. I suppose I I'm I want to bring back Mitch Haniger. I do too. I just uh, there are definitely some options. So there's Brandon Nimmo, who's who's been. Uh, mile, the Mariners, I think, have, have been reported to have uh, called around about. There's Brian Reynolds, the Pittsburgh Pirates outfielder. There's a couple of players who I think the Mariners could hypothetically be in the mix on uh, in the outfield, along with Hanniger as well. And I think, I, I don't know, this trade, or do you want to talk about Colton Wong first before we fight? I mean, that's that's pretty much all I had, except for one note on Colton Wong, yes. which is part of the reason why the Brewers traded him, to make room in the infield for Bryce Turang who, of course, is the son of Mariners legend Brian Turang. Turang, Turang, Turang. I saw Love that it. man Bryce Turang, and I was like, there is 0% chance that he is not Brian Turang's at least relative, if not son. Also knowing, I don't want to break this news to Luca, but the fact that the the having a parent who played professional baseball means that you're probably going to play professional baseball. <laughs> it's a, it definitely increases your chances. I only made it to the minors. Low A. <laughs> uh... But I think that I think this is a great trade, right? Bringing in Colton Juan improves improves defensively in the infield, the offense in general. It's an upgrade generally, right? I think Jesse Winker was going to have a bounce back year next year, but all accounts seem to be that he is uh, he had lost the clubhouse, kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Lost the clubhouse. I like the idea that a manager didn't lose the clubhouse, that a player had lost the clubhouse. Somehow a player lost the clubhouse. He had the clubhouse, the double birds in, in Anaheim, one of the clubhouse. <laughs> and then being being an asshole for the rest of the season lost him the clubhouse. And, and perhaps not not working as hard as people wanted him to. Uh, so I, I think there was that was a big element in this. I, I don't know if the Mariners would necessarily disagree that they would anticipate an upgrade or a better season from Jesse Winker next year. I, it'd be hard to go much lower. I think it's more about they just they wanted nothing to do with Jesse Winker, the person. And for a team that is all about good vibes, as the Seattle Mariners are, they didn't need Jesse Winker around. But the reality is when we're having conversations and Jerry DePoto is talking about the 2026 payroll, I don't give a fuck about the 2026 payroll in this very moment. The idea that we're going to be locked up in 2026, really, because it's not that much money that we're talking about in 2026 and beyond. That is not something that we should be concerned with as an organization right now. You should always be thinking both short and long-term at the same time, but the best way to win in baseball is by spending right now and by spending tomorrow and by spending the day after that, because there's no cap on how much money you could spend in baseball. I and mean, there's, 
there's pretty substantial restrictions based on how much you spend now. It's not 1993. Was it 93 when the money was real? I feel like it was more like 90, like Marlon's time. Yeah. yeah. All right, that's uh, fair. Salou, Kevin Brown. The, but the reality is any budget that is set is completely arbitrary. The money is literally endless. And we know that to be a, the case. Like the organization may not want to spend more, but it's not because the money doesn't exist. These are billionaires paying other money to millionaires. Like there's always more money. The money is available. It is maybe a lack of interest in spending it, but now is the time. It's not no, next year. Now is not the it time. Is, Julio Rodriguez now, is 21 years old. He's going to turn 22 at the end of the month. The time to spend is in 2025 2026 when julio is closer to his prime and one of the things that we see with these free agent contracts because of the fact that they're like 10 years long or like five years long if you're a pitcher who's 34 years old and 39? has well are we talking verlander here i was talking to grom is 34 isn't he Th- 34 and banged up yes yeah so you have to get value out of those contracts in the first couple of years because you know that the back half of them is not going to be very good. So the time to get the value is in 2025 and 2026 when Julio is like more ready to be the centerpiece of a World Series team. First of all, how dare you insult Julio and say that he's said, not ready to be the centerpiece. More ready. Julio is ready to be the centerpiece of a World Series winning team right now, today, yesterday, September. He was ready to be that centerpiece. There is a young pitching staff, a lot of them before arbitration years. There is a fairly good and deep roster that really is just needing one more bat, two more bats in this roster, especially with the Colton Wong edition. Because of these small upgrades they've made, they've poised themselves to be ready for a big upgrade. I think that's all the more reason to like take advantage of that spending power during these arbitration years to sign guys to somewhat inflated one or two year contracts as opposed to 10 year contracts. Not, you're not getting the high level value from those one or two contracts. We're not talking about a Colton Wong player. We're talking about Trey Turner. Like this is the year to spend on those players and to go all in because every year is the year to spend on those players and go all in if you're even remotely competitive. Let me ask you. The Mariners controlled Ken Griffey Jr. starting at age 21. How many World Series did that turn into? How much could you project into the future of success? Because the future is a cold and unknowable place. It is dark and scary and everything is bad. I'm the pretty optimistic that the Mariners all are that we have. better run than they were in the 1990s. Like every Why? Major League Baseball franchise, they're not going to be out there like trading extremely valuable prospects for Heathcliff Slocum. Mike Timlin. <sighs> I mean, the Jose Cruz Jr. piece of it did not end up costing them as much as Jason Veritek and Derek Lowe in the long term. I still will always miss. Jose I mean, Cruz look, Jr. we... We all will always have that half a season that Jose Cruz oh, Jr. played love in Jose Seattle. But do you understand what I'm saying? It's not about, you can't just be like, Julio is here. Julio will be there next year, there next year, there next year, there next year. 
That's not how it works. That's not how progression works in baseball. But this is Ken Griffey Jr. in 1989, not Ken Griffey Jr. in 1993. Like, the Mariners were awful when Ken Griffey Jr. Was Ken Griffey Jr. an all-star in 1989? Uh, No, I don't think so. Then Julio's better than Ken Griffey Jr. as a rookie. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Now is the time. Like, we're not going to have a year and be like, well, let's just wait a second. We'll spend eventually. 2026 is a long time from now. And so that's Griff- when Griffey was an all-star in 1990. They didn't make the playoffs until five years after that. Because they didn't spend before then. I don't think that was the only reason. I mean, I agree that they probably didn't. But also, it was when they did they spend, waited. it was Kevin Mitchell. You know what? Pete O'Brien. They, they waited for Ken Griffey Jr. to be ready. And then by the time Ken Griffey Jr. was ready, he was ready to be traded not that long after that. I mean, he, again, they made the playoffs three times in four years, and he got traded after a season where they didn't make the playoffs after all that. I, three times in four? They went in 95, 97. Or two times in four. I guess, yeah, it was two they times. They didn't go in 98, right? And then they went in 2000 They did go in 95, 8 but not in 97. 98 was the year they played the Royals or the Orioles? Correct. It was 95 and 98. I'm just saying that is not what we want. Right now, when you have a player like Julio Rodriguez, you build around Julio Rodriguez right now. You don't wait until the future to build around Julio Rodriguez. Trey Turner is still going to be good in three years. And he's to be had. That is the thing. That is the thing about baseball. It's not like... I mean, you also don't know that Trey Turner is to be had. He might not want to play in Seattle. He might want to play in a warmer weather climate. Like, every person is an individual. I think where the money is, baseball players generally are to be had. I, I agree that there's obviously, like, the choice of how it's going to be, but you could pay more. There's not a salary cap. That's not a good strategy. How is it not a good strategy? Because it's always going to cost you. Like, the money is not in practice endless. The money is endless. No matter how much they tell you the money Even the fucking Yankees endless. have a point where they stop spending. Like, no one has an infinite payroll. Whether they stop spending Even, or not, I, guess the I money should say the Dodgers there. at this point. Because also, the Dodgers are the ones who have Trey Turner. It's kind of strange. And if Trey Turner ties with another team, by definition, he's not with the Dodgers. I, I honestly don't get it why the Dodgers are not wanting to re-sign Trey Turner. Trey Turner has only been an all-star twice. He's never finished higher than fifth in MVP voting. Hmm. Okay. They could sign Aaron Judge, too. You're telling me that Trey Turner's bad? I, I'm questioning whether Trey Turner is worth your hype. Also would be the most exciting player on the team after Julio. Okay. First off, and, and Hagerty? Are I, you, I'm just are saying. Are you disputing Hagerty's excitement? I mean, uh, are yeah. Are you forgetting I, Chaos Ball? Hagerty's excitement. I don't don't want chaos ball. I don't want Julio Rodriguez to be the young scrappy guy on the team that has to put it all together. I want to just don't have good players. Chaos ball? For one time in our lives, can we just have good players on the fucking team? Don't want chaos ball. Hmm. You have chaos ball because you don't have good players or you don't 
you don't have established good players. Chaos Ball is bad. I don't agree with this assessment at all. You could do both. The Astros don't have Chaos Ball. No, but that doesn't mean they couldn't have Chaos Ball. No, the Astros cannot have Chaos Ball. They just have good players. They have predictable winning baseball. They win in a boring way. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think Jordan Alvarez is that boring. But no, that's he's not boring as a player. Like, being good is fun. But what you're talking about with Chaos Ball is like, it went 15 innings and then we won. Right? It's just like the Astros, they win in nine innings. They actually took a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know but... if you're aware. I don't know if you watched game three. <laughs> <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, though, right? Like, they're it's not relying sort of. on, like, a scrappy player to come up big. They just rely on their players. They're a constant stream of rookies who win Rookie of the Year or should win Rookie Did, of the Year. or the... Didn't, didn't finish in the top five in the voting. Really? It's shocking. It's shocking. <laughs> I'm, you understand what I'm saying? Like, having good players is better than not having good players. And the Mariners have the opportunity. They have upgraded. Colton Wong is an upgrade. They have done it on the role player level. Colton Wong's a very good player, right? He's gotten MVP votes, more than Russell Wilson. And adding a player like Colton Wong is good, but it's not the end of the offseason. No one's saying it's the end of the offseason. But it can't just be six role players. That can't be what it equals. They need more. This team, if, if you're not improving significantly, you're staying stagnant. You have to expect regression. You can't expect the Mariners' season. The only player who I think the Mariners should expect to be better next year than he was this year is maybe Julio, or at least to repeat. Every single other player on the roster they should anticipate is going to be worse next year than they were this year. I don't know. That's a nonsensical perspective, so I'm not going to engage with that. Or or at least the same. But if you're like, Cal Rally did this, he's definitely going to do that next year. Yeah, but the team is one of the youngest in the major leagues. So age That's, progression that is, is not working how in their progression favor. works, though. It doesn't, it's not that every single player is going to be 3% better than they were last year. But yes, on average, when you have a young team, on average, the players are going to get better. I hate being a baseball fan. It doesn't sue me. <laughs> I'm nervous about baseball all of a sudden. Ugh. Anyway, I just, I for one want them to put a good team around Julio Rodriguez and to win games now. If you want to wait until 2026, that's fine. I just don't think it makes sense to peak while Julio, try to peak while Julio is 20 years old. So because you don't have to peak. You when you sign a player, they're on your team for more than one year. Actually, when you sign a free agent, by definition, they're already declining. That's every free agent is already declining the moment you sign them. They're getting worse every second. <laughs> every single time you see a free agent, they are worse than the game you saw them before. <laughs> well, you know who's not declining. Hello. That's a Seattle Kraken. There we go. We set a franchise record with their seven-game winning streak. Uh, win number six, they won 9-8, not a typo, in overtime on Tuesday at the LA Kings, breaking the week-old franchise record for most goals wow. scored in the game. And they need every single one after the Kings came back from down 8-6 to force the extra session before Andre Burakovsky scored at a power play. Uh, that was That was... That set the new franchise record. The Kraken's players were, like, what was last week's word? Desultory? About uh, the win? Yeah. Desultory. Like, 
They did not seem to find any joy in scoring nine goals. It was all disappointment in conceding eight goals. That's really funny. And like, uh, I get that, like, yeah, it's not a sustainable strategy for success to win nine eight. But come on, just have a little bit of fun, hockey players. Come on. Uh, the win streak then reached seven with a thrilling comeback Thursday back at home against the Washington Capitals, trailing two nothing after one period, but equalizing with two twenty seven left in the game through Yanni Gord, and then seeing Matty Beniers score off the opening faceoff of overtime seven seconds into the extra session, which was quite a wild play to watch. And that ended it. That was that was the winner. The winning wow. streak then came to an end Saturday at home against the oh. Florida Panthers, who netted three of their five goals on power plays as part of a 5-1 victory. Uh, Kraken will wrap up their homestand Tuesday against Montreal before beginning a four-game East Coast trip Friday in D.C. Should I, I think, should I jump on the bandwagon? You should. Who, who was it who said that they jumped on the bandwagon after the overtime win 3-2? I saw that. <clears throat> Definitely someone said that, but who was it? Oh, it scrolled too far. Uh, you're going to need to do more to help me fill this. Oh, that was Grant Woshan. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Uh, I was so ready to fill. I, I think I think now is, now is probably the time. Yeah. They've been good enough for long enough. And it sounds like kind of fun hockey also. For sure. Even if the players don't think so. <laughs> I kind of like that perspective, though. Like, it's it's the same way when, I, when I'm talking to Luca, who'll apparently not make the majors, because, sadly. Um, I mean, not everyone in the majors said their parent play in the majors. <laughs> I don't know about Colton Wong's dad. Uh, God, if only we were Hawaiian. Um, anyway, I would choose to live there. But... <laughs> After every game where it's like, yeah, you did you did really well. And it's just like, you oh, gotta no, find no. Golden Wong's father played college baseball at USC and then spent two years in the minor leagues. There we go. <laughs> uh there there's always things to be better at though. So, what was that about? <laughs> about the Kraken. Oh okay. about you know, if you if you win nine eight, that's great that you scored nine goals, but also you could win nine zero next time. <laughs> That's a terrible way to go through life, <laughs> I gotta say. No, that's that's what always compete is about. I don't Literally, know if it is. No, it's not about celebrating the victories. It's about it's really just a, 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 a growth based mentality. But if you never celebrate the victories, like then what's the point of even having the success? Really P. Carroll certainly wanted to appreciate the successes. You think the Kraken are out here celebrating success in fucking December? I'm. I just. This like, is a, a team built game. for May or whatever month the hockey playoffs happen. Uh, yeah, April, May. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, like whatever. Celebrate. It's. I. I feel like God. There's one play. It was the play you mentioned earlier. It was like the Rams were too excited about a first down breakup, pass breakup, or something. There. There was a scenario where the 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 uh, breakup in the end zone on first and ten. It was like eh, maybe let's. Let's save this for third down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or fourth. I love the players when they stop people on like, they're, it becomes like fourth of an inches and the defense is just like, yeah, woo. And it's like, I'd hate to break it to you. 
I, it's I mean, 2022 in the NFL. Depends which coach you're facing. Yeah, as long as it's not Josh McDaniels. But you understand, like, it, or against, like, really good teams also. They're like, woo, we got him to four. Oh. I mean, still, it increases your chances. It does. But you you have to reassess the the way that, that your brain is programmed to be excited about fourth down has to be different now that teams are slightly better at going for fourth downs than they used to be. So speaking of games in May, the expanded 2023 WNBA regular season schedule is out. Hello. Featuring 40 games per team up from last year's record of 36. Wow, Storm, 40 games. Let's yeah. fucking go. The Storm will open by hosting the defending champion Las Vegas Aces in a rematch of last year's semifinals matchup on Saturday, May 20th at 12 noon, surely on national TV. Uh, Aces also visit on July 20th, while the Storm will wrap up the regular season on Sunday, September 10th, with another matinee against the Los Angeles Sparks. Uh, when does WNBA free agency start? January. Okay. So, but the WNBA mock-off season at Her Hoop Stats, uh, the Her Hoop Stats podcast has been recorded, so stay tuned for that one. Not as, not as thrilling for the Storm as past ones, but... Uh, <laughs> Past ones are more thrilling. Uh, we're, can, can you give us a, a, a sneak peek? I, I can't spoil it, no. Is Stewie back? I can't spoil it. There's, there's one move people will be excited about, I'm sure. Stewie's right, quick, definitely back in this fuck off season. Quick update. Utah Volleyball lost in the opening round of the NCAA tournament Friday to TCU 3-1 to end their season in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, you know, women's hoops, Western, Western Washington University soccer fans now. So <laughs> clearly, well, you know, women's hoops remained undefeated at home with a pair of wins Hello. over the last week. They beat Seattle U 60 to 49 on Wednesday, getting 17 points, 15 boards and five blocks from Delia Daniels in a dominant performance. Then crushed Queens University from again, Charlotte 54 28. <laughs> on if you Sunday. were going to be like, where's that at? I would have guessed New York again. <laughs> Like I think Georgia stands attended New York to everything, uh, <laughs> holding Queens to twenty two percent shooting in the win. Uh, the women start Pac twelve play next weekend, hosting Washington State on Sunday. Cougs six and one in non conference play. Uh, entering they they also have a game at Portland on Wednesday before the UW game. Uh, their lone loss coming against BYU in the North Shore Showcase in Hawaii. No common non conference opponents from the Huskies, so. Not, not anything really to go by until we see these two teams play in the Pac-12 opener. Our Utah men's basketball did begin Pac-12 play last week, and it was a, oh. a painful loss last Thursday in Corvallis in many ways. Huskies played that one without center Braxton Mia due to an ankle sprain, fell behind by as many as 18 in the first half before rallying, and then saw center Frank Kepnon, Frank Kepnon go down with a season-ending right knee injury on a fast break early in the second half that you knew pretty quickly was a lot of trouble. He was oh, yeah. in incredible pain. Yeah. I mean, a brutal loss for Frank Kepnon. Uh, what year is he in? I think he's... He is... I think this is his third year, but then he might have two years remaining of eligibility. Well, hope that he's able to work his way back. I mean, he's somebody who feels like you know, given his height at the very least should be somebody you could play professional basketball oh, yeah. in one capacity or another. And you just hope that he's able to come back and be the same player that he was. Obviously, you know, I don't think they're 2022. There are injuries that really reshape 
a player's game that much, but I think that front kept Nong. It it was only a couple of weeks, but tons of promise from what he did. Hugely important for this UW basketball team. Uh, and I think they're fortunate that they have another seven footer behind him. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. But in that game, uh, Huskies predictably rattled by the Kepnong injury, went cold thereafter, went down 11 in the second half, then used smaller lineups in a full court trap to come back again and take a three point lead in the final seconds, only for uh, Keon Brooks Jr. to uh, miss the second of two free throws. And the Huskies over pursuing the offensive rebound, giving Oregon State a transition opportunity that turned into a dubious three point play to give the Beavers the lead. Down one, the Huskies saw Keon Brooks miss a game-winning three at the buzzer, allowing the Beavers to snap a four-game losing streak and win their conference opener. It's bullshit. I kind of like... I was not upset with the shot at the end of the game. A lot of people were complaining about taking a three there, but here's I mean, the place just, where you're going to get space. Yeah, there just wasn't very much time remaining. There was a deflection as they were trying to rush the ball up the court. They might have had a good look for uh, Keon Menefield if not for that deflection. Uh, I I think ultimately long term that loss against Oregon State. I think the way that the team fought back in that game, understanding that Oregon State is a very very bad basketball te- team, I do think this UW team, they're really they are deceptively not bad. <laughs> and oh man, to, well, to be what? without Front Kepnong, without Braxton Mia in that game, and to have come back and Noah Williams, of course. Yep. Still, still isn't back from injury. Long-term injury. Wow, Oregon State only lost by one at USC on Sunday. I don't really know what that means, but... I mean, USC is a middle-of-the-road, solid middle-of-the-road Pac-12 team. I like, do John think... Hollinger was out here tweeting about USC, uh, Oregon State going winless in conference play, and I had to tell him, not in this Pac-12, sir. They went 1-0 in conference play. They started 1-0, yes. It didn't, they didn't even lose a game before they were not winless. Uh, but, uh, but I do think the way that the team fought back in that game a couple of times before the Kepnong injury and they got a little bit rattled and then fought back again. I think that this team, there, there's something about them and the scrappiness of the young players and the playmaking ability. I think they're going to be, they're going to be frisky. Impact off play. That's, the, that's that. the best that I'll say. And they certainly look frisky on Sunday as Mia returned to the lineup as they hosted Colorado and was a real difference maker. The Huskies were plus 15 in Mia's 27 minutes of play. I was He's scored, different. Braxton Mia is good. Five with him on the bench as he dealt with foul trouble, which will be a major concern going forward. Like that was the nice thing about having both Mia and Kepnong when one of them got into foul trouble as we saw against uh, St. Mary's in the Wooden Legacy finale. Uh, Mia had 16 points on 6 of 8 shooting, 7 rebounds, 3 blocks. Cole Bajima also scored 16 and had 6 boards. Huskies had 4 starters. For the first time. He had 3 dunks against Oregon State. And could have had a 4th, but Brooks just decided to keep it and dunk himself. Was Bajima... Bajima was the one who had the putback right off the missed free throw. in like midair. He gets the rebound and puts it back. I don't I think that was Cole Bashman. It was like the very, very end. It was part of the run that put them up at the end of the game. Uh, four starters in double figures for the Huskies Sunday. They shot 50% as a team, including seven of 19 on threes. Another cold shooting opponent against the Huskies is Colorado shot five of 19 from three-point range. I think 
Raiders looked like a good team. Yeah, it was a very solid win. It was very, very fluid also, like the way that they played. It was the first time this year that I felt like they just played very, very fluid basketball. And it seemed like they were sort of figuring out how to play together in a way that in the Oregon State game, they really never, there was no fluid basketball at all. It was all tough. Everything they did was difficult in the game. And maybe credit to Oregon State. And that against Colorado, even when they were missing threes, it was like, this is okay. They, they were shooting in rhythm, right? They looked like they were playing proper college basketball. And I, I was impressed in that game. And of course, Braxton Mia is a difference maker. Well, they better be ready to play some good college basketball on Friday because their rivalry with Gonzaga renews for the first time since 2019. And it's a Gonzaga team that's down a little bit after two years Brain. atop the Ken Palm rankings. Hint. On. These eggs have already last, lost three games, as many as they lost in the last two regular seasons combined. But let's not go overboard those losses at undefeated Texas to undefeated Purdue and in Portland, and then at Baylor by one point uh, on Friday in South Dakota. Uh, Gonzaga has some Gonzaga big wins. Sucks. <laughs> they beat Michigan State on an aircraft carrier in San they Diego. They should have lost that game, too. They oh, beat Kentucky at home and then beat Kentucky Sager sucks. Didn't Kentucky earn... lose to... Somebody? Kentucky has lost They lost to somebody very, very bad. They... Michigan State was the other team that lost to in the Champions Classic. That's it? That's their only other loss? Yeah. Huh. They put a close game with Michigan earlier Sunday, but uh, they they are still number five in Ken Palm. All oh, I thought Kentucky that... lost to like some D2 team or something. D2? <laughs> Kentucky football, maybe? I don't know. Uh, all of the teams that Kentucky has lost to are in the top five, 15 in Ken Palm. Yeah, but where do the Huskies rank? Well, they rank in the top 100 again. There we Colorado go. And we're back in. So that's exciting. Uh, Gonzaga is still number two in adjusted offensive efficiency, despite uh, losing starting point guard Andrew Nemhard, who's been replaced by Seattle native Nolan Hickman. Uh, Drew Timmy hasn't always been dominant as he came back, Michael Penix Jr. style, but uh, is shooting 65% on twos, fourth in the Ken Palm KPOI rankings. Gonzaga has hit 39% of their threes, including Wings Rasir Bolton and Julian Strother, both hitting better than 40%. But they've dropped to 32nd in adjusted defensive efficiency after finishing 10th and 11th the past two seasons. We're also 12th in 2019 when they went to the Elite Eight. This is more akin to the 2019-20 Gonzaga team that ranked first in offense, but 43rd in defense. Huskies were able to give that team a bit of a run for their money. So who who are the who are the stars in this team beyond Timmy? Like Strother uh, is the other big NBA prospect. Okay. And where where is he in the NBA radar? Yeah, probably early second round pick. It's a very different Gonzaga team than we've seen, having both Suggs and Chet Holmgren. Yes, there's no top five pick on this year's team, that's for sure. Two top five bus. And to have they don't have a player Jones like that. Much better this season. <laughs> you have to be um UW defense improved um <laughs> but uh it's a different Gonzaga team than we've seen for the last couple of years right this is a little bit more of a classic Gonzaga team yes I mean certainly when they've had a weakness like their offense you look at their Ken Bomb ranks in adjusted offensive efficiency two 
three one one one. They also had a fifth in 2015. They're but, one this year. No, the, that was reading backwards. Their second Before. this year. Okay, <laughs> but Braxton Mia, come on. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know that Braxton Mia will be as much of a difference maker against Gonzaga, but we've seen the Huskies play some close games against the Zags. They haven't beaten them since, I believe, the Brandon Roy senior year. Oh, the Brandon Roy, Adam Morrison show. How sweet it was. was I mean, they didn't time. play each other that much during there. No, there, there was a long period of time that they did not play each other. There were years that UW would have beaten them and they wouldn't play each other. So, like, I, I, don't, I don't know. If there were years they would have beaten them. There are years that they could have beaten them. Yes. In 2018 was the last time they played in Spokane. Huskies. Uh, no, wait, am I misremembering that? 2019 was the last year they played in Spokane? Uh, is this game or in 2000, Spokane? Yeah, yeah, 2018 was the last time they played in Spokane. It's the 2018-19 season. And the Huskies lost that by two points. Yes, this one is in, in Spokane. Okay, that's kind of disappointing. Because I feel like this is the year that... I think Gonzaga is a little bit down and I think this UW team is again, a little bit frisky. I would feel like there was a chance if it was in Seattle. I agree. Yeah. As it is. We'll After see. that, the Huskies will begin a little bit easier portion of their schedule before they resume conference play under the uh, current PAC 12 schedule on Tuesday. They host Cal Poly, who is uh, number 247 in the Ken Palm rankings. That'll be the second lowest rated team they've faced thus far. I know this Cal season. Baptist. Or... Well, guess what? What? Cal Poly, after starting 0-3 against D1 opposition, including a loss at Stanford by 37 points, uh, their most recent game, they beat Cal Baptist. God home. damn it. Cal Baptist. <laughs> by 11 points. Fucking team. <laughs> They have the uh, 314th ranked adjusted offensive efficiency in Ken Palm. But, you know, maybe we'll beat Gonzaga. Yeah, you never know. So, well, I mean, it's going to be an interesting week of sports yet again. And uh, again, later in the week, we'll be back with the 2022 year in music. Always a favorite of ours to record. I've got my top 10 rankings of songs for 2022. Tristan will talk- be talking about the industry, the state can of the t- industry. Can we talk soccer for one second? I mean, we're already an hour 40 into this minute podcast, but I suppose so. Put this at the end. No, just, I mean, just do it. What did you think about do- the soccer game? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did not think I enjoyed waking up at 6.50 a.m. for it. You woke up early to prepare for it. Well, I had to see the the anthem did you yeah that's a big you... part of the world cup matches all right you don't think uh, so no i don't care at all uh i will i had an alarm set for seven and then i actually i fell back asleep for a second and got out of bed at seven twenty three, and the u.s was already down one zero uh that's what i was thinking is like if i had woken up without an alarm at like eight and the u.s was already down two two nothing like that would have actually been worse than waking up early Oh, God, it was so fun seeing those goals against the U.S. Uh, as a first-time U.S. fan, I have to say, not a fan. Uh, <laughs> it was, you, it was, you prefer not qualifying for the World Cup? First of all, how dare you? 
Second off, I prefer being the best team in all of Europe. You, you did refer to the USA as us earlier today before catching yourself and realizing that now that no, the USA is out of the World Cup, they're no longer us. The US was us, yeah, until the second that they were eliminated. Now but, us is whoever's playing England. France oh. is going to be us. I, I don't have to worry that much because this is not going to be a Rams Super Bowl style victory for England. Like that is a that's a legit competition. But I I just during this match, I think there was a quote from after the match from Alexi Lawless saying that the US played a better game than the Dutch did. Oh, the I think or, the XG might have felt favored them. I, I just like the idea of expected goals. I, I think when we talk about expected goals, we're not understanding how the sport of soccer is played. Which is like, if Highly this was random. a... No, the, the team who is behind... I mean, I always think about that on shots and goal in hockey. Like, if you're the team that's behind in the third period, you're going to end up with an advantage in shots on goal because you're trying to shoot on goal a bunch and the other team isn't. Literally any second that the Netherlands wanted to score a goal was really concerned with it. They scored a goal and it was quick. They knew that they wanted to get a goal early. They knew that they wanted to come back with five defenders and they knew that they wanted to fuck around with the U S like in, in a certain way they wanted to fuck around. I don't think they wanted to they, give up a goal to, uh, right. Uh, yeah. Like not facing the goal, just back healing it in. Right, but somewhat that, randomly. That's how you score against a team like this. Like they have one of the best central defenders in the world. They just, they were not concerned they kind of slept walked their way through this victory against the U.S. You think they arm's length the U.S. MNT? They didn't. They didn't arm's length them. They just they were bored by it, and you could see it. It was just like there was never any concern in their faces at all. It was. I agree. There was never any concern. It was one of those matches. I mean, when the U.S. scored their goal, it was okay. We need to come back and do this, and then they scored instantly. I think right? the, I, my reaction was, and this is one of your favorite things, like we're going to get a lot of like all out offensive. Now we're really playing for the next 15 minutes plus stoppage time. And instead it was like two minutes and then Netherlands oh, scored. Because the U.S. defense is not good enough. And that's the reality. But they were like, we're going to, we, they scored the goal, right? Memphis scores the goal. And then the Dutch were like, sure, have possession. I mean, they were willing to let the USMNT have possession before they scored a goal. Like, take these shots. Do whatever you want to do because you are not skilled enough to play against us. And to me, great soccer clubs are like a slot machine, right? They give you just enough to think you're close. But in reality, you'll never win, right? It's always one cherry away. And that's what the Dutch did to the U.S. That's why Alexi Laws thinks that the U.S. outplayed the Dutch. Because they gave them the chances to think that they were close in the game, but they were nowhere near them. And skill-wise, they're not in the same conversation as as the Dutch are. I don't know. The, play the, the Bill Barnwell high, highlighted where Musa def- dribbled through four Dutch defenders was pretty incredible. Yeah, that's that's great. Having one good play or whatever... But, like, they could have done that anytime they wanted to. If we were playing soccer, if that game was tied up, the Dutch would have scored instantly. 
And we know I it. Don't know. We know that that would have happened. Like, it would have taken a miracle for the U.S. to have won that match. I don't know that I buy that they outplayed the Dutch. I definitely don't buy that. They definitely so did not I do not know that I do them. not buy that. But I don't know that it was necessarily that lopsided. Because there's lots of teams that have, like, wanted to score a goal and still don't because... It's hard scoring goals. It's like if all the goals that people thought were going to be scored got scored, soccer would be hockey. If all the goals that people thought were going to be scored, that would be the Dutch against the U.S. Like it was not that hard for them when they were like, okay, we need to push here. The U.S. scored a goal. We need to push. They but scored like, a goal so fast and just unmarked that you that, that U.S. defense was not equipped to play against a highly skilled. I actually had this thought also which was very, very skilled soccer players understand angles better than the U.S. soccer team does. I mean, yes, but also there's just a shit ton of luck involved in soccer, and I don't think this that's was what not, you're This loss was not luck. I'm sorry, but it, it wasn't. The loss was due to luck, but I don't think you can just like be like, well, now I want to score a goal. Like Before, I didn't care about scoring a goal, but now I want to score a goal. Like, that's it's not how that soccer is. Easy. No, that's how it is. We've no. seen it a billion times. I think it's more just that the U.S. got rope-a-doped into playing a possession game against a team that was very happy to play the counter against them. Uh, there's a long way to go. Obviously, it's a young club. And I hope in 2026, is that the year? That is that is the year. Uh, look, this this whomever wins this World Cup it's going to be less legitimate than the Rams Super Bowl. And it already is, right? We're playing in fucking December, the World Cup or whatever in Qatar. I mean, come on. This is not even... Look, England has no chance. We know that. They're playing France. It's over. But it was good while it lasted. It's not coming home. Uh, the spirit of 66 is confirmed not alive. But <clears throat> the the whole World Cup in general, whoever wins this, is going to have an asterisk. And the first legitimate World Cup that we'll have in, honestly, decade plus is going to be in 2026. Oh, and that's the one. Oh, I guess because 2014 will have been more than a decade by that point. I only count 2006 personally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the last legitimate World Cup that I recognize. Uh, but by 2026, it'll how many, be. How many legitimate Euros do you recognize? <laughs> At least the last one. <laughs> what about the ones where Italy lost to Spain? Oh, there we lost to Spain in the final, right? Yeah, On there was, PKs. That, no. I oh, there the was one where they the just one was not close. The semi, I think, was they the one just that was killed PK. us. Yeah. Uh, the there was the one that we lost in finals. The one where they just destroyed us, and it was like Spain was Spain was the best club in the world at the time. That's fine. We won consecutively Euro two thousand eight. World Cup 2010, Euro 2012. Pretty no, impressive. They, they were, that was a real generation that they had. Uh, but I think by 26, there are enough good young players from the U.S. soccer club who will have enough experience in very, very big stages to be competitive. I guess I'm misremembering it. The, in 2008, Spain beat Italy on on penalties so it must have been 2012 and that was in the quarterfinals it was not even in the semis eight was on penalties in the quarters yes so 12 must have been the finals and that was when it was just it was we knew it was over from the beginning they were too good 
There was a very impressive semifinal win, though. 2-1 over Germany. 4-0 in the final in 2012. <laughs> Oof. That was a case of scoring at will. What about the the penalties that we beat England on? Was that that was twelve, right? Yeah, that was in the quarterfinals. Yeah. God, that was sweet. Oh, I loved it. The semis. I remember I was in Portland for to broadcast the NBA draft, and Balotelli scored twice. Good time. I think he took his shirt off at least one of them. Uh, but look, also, it's not a legitimate World Cup when the best club in all of Europe isn't participating. So like, I guess congrats to the Netherlands for advancing to the round of eight, but did they even play in the Euro? The last one? I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's they're a much better team than the U S and also. So is everybody. (laughs) Oh no. On that note, thanks for listening. Thanks. <sighs> Who did the Dutch play <clears throat> in the 2020 year? Uh, they lost to the Czech Republic in the round of 16. <laughs> That's the team that just fucking killed the U.S. Great. I, the thing about soccer is it's very random, which is why it's a great idea to play it in single game elimination. <laughs> That's how you definitely find the best team. I mean, but they don't in a lot of ways where they do the home and home and then away goals. Single game elimination is the only way to play a sport like that. I'm I'm anti-playoffs. 36 games, home and home. So stupid. No college football playoff. Let's just have a champion in the Pac-12 and play home and home with all, all 11 other teams. 22-game season. You want every sport to be determined on like a Tuesday night in December. Oh, could you do it in Stoke? <laughs> just whatever. Have fun with that. The table's the worst thing that ever happened to sport. A one-game playoff against Tulane. <laughs>